Welcome to Life Church today. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you. And if you have your Bible, if you would turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I'm going to get there in a minute. It's page 426 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And uh, we're going to get there in just a minute. We're in our series called Christian Atheist. And today we're talking about I believe in God, but I trust in money. Uh, it's kind of an interesting topic because we picked this out months ago. And uh, what's been happening in Europe, and uh, I, I was listening to CNBC later this, earlier this week, just kind of driving from one place to another, and, they were, and they, the, the announcer came on and said, the market right now is in, is in complete freefall. You could just like hear the panic that, you know, these investors and all this stuff going on, and there's all these people from all around the world talking about Greece and talking about Italy and what's going to happen with the euro and the... I mean, all of this stuff, because we live in such a connected world. And I thought, man, what a great topic to talk about this weekend at Life Church as we talk about this thing called money. Because if you take money out, American currency, it says, in God we trust. And we give verbal espousal to that. But the reality is we typically don't live that way. Matter of fact, even inside the doors of the church, we don't always live that way. And that's, that's what, why we're kind of dealing with this subject, because I want to go back to what a Christian atheist is, and we've been talking about this series, and that is it's someone who believes in God but lives life as though he doesn't exist. Someone who says they believe in God, but they live their life as though he doesn't exist. Someone who says, hey, man, I'm a Christ follower. Hey, I go to church. Hey, I'm a member at Life Church. Hey, I'm connected. But really, when you look at how they live life Monday through Friday, they really don't live life in a way that really connects. You really couldn't connect the dots. It would take a while to do that. And so today I want to talk about it in the, in the area of money. Now when I say money, all of a sudden people start going, Phew. is he going to take a special offering? The answer is no. Okay. Is he pushing for something today? No, that's in two weeks. Okay. Is, does he need something today? No. I just want to talk about this. Now I've heard it said, and this is a pretty provocative statement. I don't know what you think about this being kind of just think about it, but I've heard some pastors say that if you show me your checkbook, I'll show you your passion level for God. You show me your date book, your appointment book, and I'll show you your passion level for God. Jesus said it this way in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verse 34. He says, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what Jesus was saying. They didn't have checkbooks back in the first century, so you couldn't say where your checkbook spending is or where your credit card swiping is, right? Swipe. Just swipe your way to happiness. Wherever that is, wherever you spend your money, wherever you spend your treasure, wherever you spend those things that are valuable to you, that's where your heart is. Now, we can't argue with that. You may not like what the preacher said about the checkbook or about the appointment book. Remember, that wasn't me. That was somebody else, okay? And I'm not taking a special offering. Look at your neighbor and say, he's not taking a special offering today. Come on, really. I think some people just need to be relieved of that right now, okay? Because I do think there's this, this is important because this really isn't talking so much about giving, but it's how we look at this thing called money. Uh, public Broadcasting Service, they, they did a program called Affluenza and talking about the affluence in America, about modern-day materialism. And they gave statistics like this. They said that the average American will spend six hours a week shopping and 40 minutes a week with their children. The average American... We'll see more than one million commercials on spending, on products in which to buy, to enhance or to better their life materialistically uh, by the time they're 20 years of age. That in America, recently, last couple of years, more people filed for bankruptcy than graduated from colleges all across the country. And that 
of divorces. This isn't a Christian broadcast. This was just a secular view on America and money and materialism and all that. That 90% of divorces in this country are over money. Money's a big deal. Money, when, it, when you're talking about money, you, you, people get kind of funny when you talk about money. I mean, yeah, we, we, just, we like to talk about a lot of things, but we don't like to talk about money. So that's why I thought we'd talk about it. Since you don't like to talk about it, I thought we'd talk about it this weekend, all right? So now I want you to remember this program wasn't coming at money from a moral perspective. They weren't looking at the morality of whether it's right or wrong. They were just talking about the effects, the pragmatic view of does money make you happy? Does wealth make you happy? And they, they had some quotes. They had, they had different people in history and, and even of recent, recent history. But they quoted W.H. Vanderbilt of Vanderbilt University. said that the care of $2 million is enough to kill anyone for there's no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, who was the first millionaire in the United States, and the Astor family has, has since very much affluent. I am the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. And I love this one. Henry Ford said, I was happier when I was doing the mechanic's job. Money, we use money, we trust money to provide two things for us, happiness and security. That's why it's such a big deal. We look to money, especially in the the American mindset, to provide for us happiness and security. Now, happiness in the fact that we think somewhere in the American mindset that if we have that house or we have that car or we live in that neighborhood or, or, or we make that amount of money or we get that job, that it's going to bring us to this new level of utopia that all of a sudden we're going to be happy. And there's something about that that we just go, man, if I could just get to the next level, if I could just get to the next level, if I could just get to the next level. And those of you in this room that are like that, the bottom line is, is that it's kind of how you're made and how you're wired. It's not necessarily right or wrong, but you have to watch that because the problem isn't so much about what you have. It's about getting it. It's about the, the, the acquiescing of those products, of those, of those monies, of those statuses, of whatever that may be. And you realize that money doesn't really bring you joy or happiness. Now, I've heard people say, man, money doesn't bring you happiness. And I thought, hey, I tried it for a while. Just let me, let, let me be my own judge, right? Oh, don't shut me down when I'm preaching good. But it's true. You hear person after person after person after person who has much wealth and just say, you know, at the end of it, it's just, there's no happiness. And the second thing that we try to find from money is security. Really, well, there's a rainy day and doesn't the Bible say, you know, the Proverbs says, watch the ant and see how the ant puts it back and how we're supposed to store things up and we're supposed to take care of things. Yes, as long as your trust isn't in money. There's two types of greed, isn't there? There's the greed of getting and the greed of hoarding. None of us in this room have a problem with somebody saying, well, there's a greed of getting. You know, it's just, there's just too much and people, and da, 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 da. especially in, in, in the upper Midwest, we're very conservative people. But the same could be true of saying, hey, man, how much do you need to put back for a rainy day? How much do you need? And why do you need that? Do you put your trust in that? It's not about an amount. I've said that many, many, many times. Materialism isn't about an amount. You talk to someone who makes $30,000 a year, and they'll tell you that the lifestyle of someone who makes $100,000 a year is, is materialistic. 
You talk to someone who makes $100,000 a year, and they'll say, man, my lifestyle is materialistic. Someone who makes a half million a year, now that lifestyle is materialistic. You talk to someone who makes $500,000, oh, no, 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 no. This is just par for how people live at this area. Someone who makes multi-millions a year, now that's materialistic. See, there, materialism begins where your income ends. Materialism has nothing to do with a dollar amount or with a badge on a car or an address or a status or what you think or I think. It's about when I began to live beyond my own means, when I began to push beyond my own means, either to save because I'm putting my trust in that money that it's going to save me and keep me in my old age, and that the stock market can be in quote-unquote free fall, as I heard on CNBC this week, or that if I just have this thing here, or I just buy that thing, or if I just get to this level, I will be happy. The truth is, the number one competitor for our hearts is money. The truth is the number one competition for your heart is money. And you think, man, really? Okay, I'm going to show you chapter and verse on this. You you don't think I can show it to you? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 through 15, Solomon begins to write, and he gives eight statements, and he ends with one conclusion. He gives eight statements about money, directly about money. Now, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, according to Scripture. He was King David's son, and he had no end to the money. No end to the wisdom, no end to the power, no end to the affluence. Verse, chapter 5, verse 10, he says this, Whoever loves money never has enough. So the more you have, the more you want. That's what he's saying. That money is this insatiable appetite. It, 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 there, there's, there's no way to, to fill it. There's no way to quench the thirst. The second statement, he goes on in verse 10 to say, Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Whoever loves wealth, it's not whoever makes a lot of money. Remember, don't, don't confuse that. It's not the love of, it's, it's the love of money that's root of all evil, not money. Money's just a, it's just a tool. But whoever loves wealth, whoever's in love with wealth, they're never satisfied. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. He goes on to say the third statement in verse 11, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. As the goods in your life increase, the more stuff that you have, so do those who consume them. The more you have, the more people, a.k.a. the government, will come after it. Can I get a witness in the house? You know what I'm talking about. The more you have, the more people are around you. Have you ever noticed when you didn't have anything, you didn't have no friends? Don't shut me down, don't point to your neighbor. And all of a sudden, you become rich and famous, Beverly Hillbillies, baby. All of a sudden, everybody shows up because they all want a piece of the action. You lose it all, oh, we're sorry. You call us when you get back to where you were, Right? The government, doesn't, the government doesn't run audits on people that, 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 that make under a certain amount because they're not really going after that. It's all about the more you have, the more people want it. We're seeing that even in this whole tax conversation about how much should the wealthy pay and how much should this pay and should there be a flat tax? Should there be this and should there be that? And there's all this back and forth. The bottom line is the more you have, the more people want it. He goes on, the fourth statement in verse 11 says, What benefit... Are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? What benefit are all these things that you have except to feast your eyes? Except to look at them. The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. I mean, look, you can't drive six cars, right? They may be beautiful. You may have one for every day of the week. Or seven cars, right? Seven, like the seven days in a week. You may have a house on the West Coast. You have, may have a house in the Hamptons. You got a house down south. You got a house in another country just in case America falls apart. You got your dual citizenship in Dominican Republic. Whatever it is, at the end of the day, you can't be, you're not Jesus Christ. You're not omnipresent. 
So what good does it do, Solomon says? Except you just are able to look at it. And the more you look at it, the more you realize it really doesn't do you any good. The fifth statement he makes is in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I want you to hear that again. The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Do you remember, for some of you who've been living for a while, remember when you didn't have a whole lot? Hey, that little apartment, and you just, some of you, that's where you're living right now. It's like, oh. But, but you know, and you, you dreamed about having a house. You dreamed about, you dreamed about, you dreamed about, and all of a sudden the kids are out. You dream about just going back to that one-bedroom apartment where somebody takes care of things, right? I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's just like the more you have, it permits you no sleep. It gives you no rest. He goes on to say the sixth statement in verse 13. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to its harm of its owner. The more you have, the more you hurt yourself by hanging on to it. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by hanging on to it. I've said it many times. I've heard it said. I didn't originate the statement. But there's nothing wrong with having things. Just don't let things have you. But that's hard. Because the more that we have, the more we have a tendency to hold on to it. That's true of anything. I mean, even as a church... You know, when we were 100 people here in a storefront, we would risk, man, we would roll the proverbial dice and risk things because what did we have to lose? We didn't have property. We didn't have a name. People didn't really know who we were. We were 100 people. We were just praying for another visitor to walk through the door. I mean, you know, we, we, that kind of, and then all of a sudden, God continues to bless, and God blesses, and he blesses. And then all, and, and we'll, you know, we'll pay this property off, and we'll build a building, and, and, we'll, and, 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 and that kind of a deal. And the church will continue to grow. And then all of a sudden, if we're not careful, one day somebody will say, oh, we can't have the Boy Scouts in our building because we got to keep it nice and we can't open it up to the community anymore because we got to keep it nice. And it was okay when it was just the old storefront, but now we've got to, because the more you have, the more the tendency is to hold on to it, to, to try to deal with it. It doesn't matter if it's money, if it's, if it's a growing church, if it's a growing business. I mean, think about those. For, you, for those of you that are business owners, I mean, when you were starting out, you would take incredible risk because you had to. But then the more you, the higher up you go, the, the, the more you become king of your own hill or king of your own mountain, the more you restrictive, if you're not careful, you become because you just don't want to risk it all. It's just too risky. Comfort becomes the thing that you achieve. He goes on to say the seventh statement in verse 14. Wealth lost through some misfortune. So that is when he had a son, there was nothing left for him. The more you have, the more you have to lose. The greater that you go up, the more that you go up, be careful what you aspire for because the greater that you go up, the more you have to lose. And the more that you have a tendency to play it safe. See, that's the thing. It's not about stuff. It's about do things have you. It's not about do you have things. And the eighth statement that he makes is this. Verse 15, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as, he, and as he comes, so he departs, and he takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. The more you have, the more you leave behind. The more you have, the more you leave behind. So he makes these seven, excuse me, these eight statements about wealth, about money, about things. And he has one conclusion. If you're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, turn back to, turn back to chapter 2. Because he makes this statement, and then he kind of backs it up in the, in the preceding chapters. But Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 11. 
Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10 and verse 11. Solomon said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, and I refused my heart no pleasure. And my heart took delight in all of my work, and this was all the reward of my labor. Verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, of what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon says, look, when I did all of this stuff, when I tried all of this stuff, when I looked to money to bring me happiness, it brought me no happiness. When I looked to money and I looked to things to bring me security, it brought me no security. Because as I looked at it, as I looked at it from every angle, I realized that it was meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. So what's the cure? What, what's the answer? The answer simply is Jesus. And I know that sounds really like maybe cheesy Christian, but I'm going to explain this. I don't mean like Jesus in a person. I don't mean like Jesus is some person at church. I don't mean like a Jesus Bible lesson. I don't mean like more Bible reading. I don't mean like more prayer time. But I'm talking about falling in love with Jesus. I'm talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ where nothing else except for that matters. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about going to Life Church. I'm not talking about going to a Bible study or a small group. I'm not talking about being involved in ministry. I'm not talking about being a member of this church or any church. I'm not talking about giving of your time, your talent, your treasure. I'm, I'm talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Where Jesus Christ becomes the very center of your life. Because I said it at the very beginning. Materialism isn't a dollar amount. Materialism isn't a car or isn't a neighborhood or it, it, isn't, it isn't a lifestyle. Materialism has nothing to do with that. What may be materialistic for you may be completely within the strata of how somebody else can live. The only person that really judges that is God. And money, there's nothing wrong with money because the Bible says that they're that. I mean, it says it's the love of money. That's the root of all evil. Jesus said, look, there's nothing wrong with having treasure, but wherever your treasure is, it's going to be a pretty indicator of where your heart is. And, and here's, here's what I'm saying is, do you love Jesus with such a reckless abandon? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in a way in which you totally trust him in his work? Not me. I'm just a messenger, right? I'm not Jesus. Far from it. But do you have this passionate relationship with him that you literally live life palms up. Where you say, God, I'll say what you want me to say. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. And I'm not talking about being a full-time ministry. Because I don't feel like, I don't, I don't, I, I believe God calls people to marketplace ministry the same way he calls people to vocational ministry. But I'm saying where well, you are in love with Jesus, where nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter if you got a million bucks in the bank or you got 10 bucks in the bank. It doesn't matter if you even have a banking account where it's all about this personal relationship with Jesus. That's the cure. Because you and I, left to our own self and our own ideologies, we have this tendency to either look to money as a way to make us happy because, I mean, let's just be honest. It's kind of fun to go buy something new. It's kind of fun to go on a trip. It's fun to spend money. It, it's, there's no... There's a little bit of a, hey, this is a good time. But it's just so short-lasting. It just doesn't last. And security, have you ever thought about, like, I mean, I'm, I'm 39. 
And I'm having this conversation with, you know, retirement and da 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 Well, how much money do you have to have to retire? Nobody can answer that question because we don't know what's going to happen 20. We don't know what's going to happen 20 days from now, much less 20 years from now, right? In the world that we live in, it's like, oh, my goodness. So all of a sudden you just go, I get what Solomon was saying. It's like a chasing after the wind. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have some emergency reserve funds. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a retirement account. I'm not saying you should just go spend your money and go blow it. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying that it shouldn't have you. The only thing that should have me is Jesus. The only thing that should captivate my heart and my soul is Jesus. The only one I should look to for the joy that passes understanding is Jesus. The only one that I should look to for strength and security in a very insecure world is Jesus. I want you to think about that just for a minute. And I want you to turn your attention to the screen. You're going to see a video of transformation on this subject of I believe in God, but I trust in money. Check this out. Hi, my name is Mike Brinkman, and this is my life story. I was saved at a young age, and I was called to ministry when I was at a Bible camp around the age of 10 or 12. As I got into my teens, I got very rebellious and uh, turned from God, didn't want to listen to my parents, uh, started smoking and sneaking around. I eventually wound up moving out my senior year of high school, and I wanted to live my own life and do my own thing because I was missing out on what was in the world. Um, I wound up getting into a lot of trouble after I graduated high school and pretty much found an out in joining the service for five years. Uh, the Navy taught me a lot of things and instilled a lot of good qualities in a very troubled young man. Uh, but I also ran into drugs and alcohol, which I began to abuse a lot. After about seven months, I could no longer survive on my own so I called up my family and said that I needed to come home. I wound up coming back and finding a job within a week and my mother invited me to come to Life Church. I thought about it and decided I would come and God hit me hard and fast. Uh, he just showed me so much love and, and I broke down right there sitting in the chair. Pastor Aaron was talking about the school of ministry that they're going to be starting here. And when he started to talk about it, I felt a literal tap on the shoulder and an almost audible voice as God told me, if you're going to give in to me, and you are, so stop pretending that you're not, you're not gonna go to school for computers. You're not gonna go to UWWC. You're going to go to this school of ministry I called you many years ago, and we're not doing things your way anymore. We're gonna do things my way. A few weeks later, Pastor Aaron was talking about Prime 29 and how we have a donor to match $125,000 of what we give. And God sat there and told me that I needed to give $3,000. He said, Michael, three is six, three is six. And I was furious because at the time I didn't even have $3,000 saved up. I'm currently staying in Burlington, living in a household that is 
not following God and, and I needed to get a car so that I could move up here and be closer to my family and I want to be involved in this church and I was mad. I said, God, if I give all of my money, I don't have anything left then. What am I supposed to do? And I walked out of the auditorium with tears in my eyes and my mother asked me what God had spoke to me and she was thinking that it was something moving. She was right, it moved me to anger. And I responded, I'm so mad at God. How dare he ask me to do this? He doesn't have any right to ask me this. It's too soon. I just started a solid walk with him and now he asked me this. I had to use that next paycheck and the next paycheck to be able to total the amount of money that he told me to give. But by the time I did, I was able to give with a joyous heart, just trusting in God that he's going to provide. I'm still without a car, I'm back to square one, but I just trust in God that he's going to show me the way and show me the plan that he has for me where I'm at right now. I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know all of God's plans, but what I do know is that over the last few weeks, anytime I start to get worked up or nervous over it, I can almost hear it. It's, it's so powerful and, and almost audible, and he just tells me, don't worry, I've got this. Mike's story reminds me of two people that the Gospels talk about. It's kind of interesting. One in Matthew and one in Luke, both in chapter 19. And there are two men that come to Jesus. And the first man that comes to Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 19. He's called the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus looks him straight in the eye and he says, just sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the Bible says that the young man dropped his head and walked away in sorrow because he could not give up what he had. Luke chapter 19 gives us a very similar situation, but a completely different outcome. When Jesus encounters this businessman who's very unscrupulous, and he basically is kind of hooked and crooked his way through life, and he's very wealthy at this point. His name is Zacchaeus, and he's very curious about this man named Jesus, because Zacchaeus has come to a place in life where he realizes that money can't bring you happiness or security. And Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, let's sit down and talk. And they have dinner. And through this conversation, Zacchaeus encounters Jesus in a personal and in a real way. And Zacchaeus confesses his sin of how he has basically taken advantage of people financially at his own benefit. And Zacchaeus says, I confess my sins and I make you my Lord and my Savior. And I will repay four times what I have taken and how I've done people wrong. The difference isn't church. The difference isn't knowledge. The difference really isn't Jesus. Because he's the same person in both situations. The difference is how the individual responded to the truth. Did they follow him? Did they serve him? Did they surrender themselves? Not to a church, not to a pastor, not to a priest, not to a rabbi, but to Jesus and to a relationship with him. Or did they walk away and go, I believe that you're God, but I just don't trust you. 
See, because here's what happens. When you fall in love with Jesus, two things will happen in your life. When you really fall in love with Jesus, number one, you'll become strangely content. I don't know how to explain it to you. I'm just telling you, even in the world that we live in, you become strangely content. The Bible says it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, 18, and 19. Paul says to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who, pro- who richly provides for us everything for our enjoyment. When you really find Jesus, not church, not religion, not weekend Christianity, not becoming a Christian atheist. But when you really find Jesus, there's something about it that you just go, whatever you want, God, whatever you need is yours. Again, I'm not taking a special offering today, so don't. Oh, he's going for the kill. He's fixing to land the plane. No, I'm telling you what will set you free. I'm telling you what you, what you search for. I'm telling you what the commercials that tell you that they can provide, but they are lying to you. The only water that you can drink of that you'll never thirst again is provided by Jesus. The only contentment in this discontented world is him. The only stability in this unstable world is him. The only rock of salvation in the middle of a troubled sea is him. Not me. Don't look to me. Don't look to some Christian leader, but him. But when you find him, you will experience peace that passes understanding. All of a sudden, you may be emotional. You may be upset. You may be frustrated. You may be like, God, what are you doing? Come on. I love what Mike said. When he said that to me, I wasn't glad. I was angry. Why? Because God asks of us what is seemingly impossible in our eyes. And he just wants to know, do you love me? Or do you love something in this present world? Do you want to serve me and follow me, or are you trying just to use me to get what you can get out of me? Are you really recklessly abandoning yourself and submitting yourself and dying on the cross of self to follow me, Jesus would say? Or is this all about you? Because if it's all about you, you'll never be content. But when it's about him, there's this strange sense of deep-seated contentment that comes over you. Paul says, whether I have much or I have little, I've learned to be content in all ways. And the second thing that happens to you is that you become irrationally generous. Ah, he's going to take the offering now. No, I'm not. You become irrationally generous. Let me explain this to you. In Malachi chapter 1.8, there's a verse where they're bringing, their, they're bringing their, their sacrificial lambs to basically atone for their own sins. And the Bible says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept it, says the Lord Almighty? God says, look, here's the bottom line. When, when, if you're going to bring me something, if you're, if you're going to serve me, if you're, if you're going to do this in the Old Testament, they had to bring a lamb or, or a goat or an animal that was without spot, without blemish. They had to bring their very best to God, that God would not settle for anything less. Against commandment number one. He goes on, and, 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 and David says it like this in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. No, I insist on paying you for it, for I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I love that. 
When they say, hey, don't worry about it, David. We'll take care of it. Hey, we'll, we'll make the offering. We'll make the sacrifice, God, for you. And David says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This isn't about you. This isn't about money. This isn't about an offering. This is about God. And I won't give God something that doesn't cost me something. I won't serve God in such a way that it doesn't cost me something. When was the last time you heard a Christ follower go, no, 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 this isn't about weekend service. This isn't about doing the bare minimum. I am not going to bring some half-baked Christian service to God that doesn't cost me anything. No, no, this isn't about church. This isn't about you. This is about me serving God who saved my soul, who gave me peace and gave me life to the full. That's what David said. You become irrationally generous. And, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2 and 3 says, Out of the most severe trial, speaking of the, of the church in Corinth, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in such rich generosity, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their own ability. What causes you to do that? Jesus. Because you realize it's not about me. And it's the bottom line. Church isn't about me. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's not about me, it's about us, that I'm not the point. And I'm not just talking about giving your money. I'm talking about, like, right now, we've got, we've got a group of men that are halfway around the world and uh, backpacking and, and preaching the gospel throughout uh, uh, in, in, in Cambodia. I mean, it's illegal to do what they're doing. What causes people to take hard-earned money, get on a plane, be delayed two days because of flight delays and, and flight mechanical problems to get there. To be delayed in Tokyo, then delayed again in Bangkok, just only to get into to Cambodia, to put on their packs and to go. What causes you to do that? It's not about me. What causes people to give of their time and their talent and their treasure? It's not about me. What causes you to serve in the way that you do? Life Church, you serve in a way that grabs the, grabs the attention of the community in which we live. Because we realize it's not about us. The weekend service isn't about us. The preaching isn't about us. The worship isn't about us. Our service isn't about us. What causes Steve and Priscilla Graybosch to, to, to launch this great ministry called Adullam and to, and to minister to people in inner city in Milwaukee and to walk away from very good paying jobs in order to serve the poor in our city? It's not about them. What causes someone like Diane Studer to, to go on a missions trip and to see the need and in an emerging third world country and to come back and go, there's got to be something that's done and God's asked me to do this and create this not-for-profit Souls for Jesus organization that she does, that she does so wonderfully. It's, it's because the bottom line is it's not about me. Whatever it may be, it's understanding that it's stewardship versus ownership, that, that as long as I have something, I believe I own it. But when I give it away, I relinquish control, I relinquish power, I relinquish the prestige. See, the reason why it, for me uh, of giving of, of time, talent, and treasure isn't a hard thing because I realize it's not mine anyhow. It's the turtle on the fence post. You know what I'm talking about? I didn't get here by myself. Thank you very much. Somebody help me in the process. It's not mine. I quit arguing with God a long time ago when it came to God. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to be? Because I am just stewarding this life. I'm just stewarding these talents. You're just stewarding your time. Don't, seriously, don't think for a moment that you actually own what you own. That's what the Bible says. 
that we're here for a moment, then we're gone. I'm not saying we need to be foolish. I'm not saying we need to be reckless. I'm not saying you don't need to take care of your bills or take care of your family. The Bible says that, 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 that if we don't take care of our families, we're worse than an unbeliever. We're worse than someone that we call a sinner that, that's not going to heaven. I'm not talking about responsibility. What I am saying is, is to understand it's not mine. It's his. Whatever he wants. And, and that it's about what Luke said, wherever my treasure is, there my heart is also. Probably the most convicting thing when it comes to this whole money subject is where is my heart? Where's my treasure? Is it bound up in a residence? Is it bound up in some sports car or some hobby or some something? Is it invested in me? And I go back to those two guys that encountered Jesus. Both dealing with this thing of money. Both believing in God, because that's why they came to him. Both being curious of who he was. That's why they showed up and had the conversation. But one leaves sad because he can't give it up. And one finds the happiness and the joy and the security that he thought money would bring. That only Jesus can bring. So here's where I'm going. It has nothing to do with an offering. It has to do with which of those two people are you. Because every one of us in the room, we're either Zacchaeus or the rich young ruler. Well, I'm going to kind of be in in between. No, you can't be in between. The Bible says you're either hot or you're cold. You're either left or you're right. You're one way or the other. But when you encounter Jesus, which person are you? Are you the rich young ruler that when Jesus says, hey, I just want you to invest your time. Hey, I want you to give this up a little bit. Hey, I'm going to ask you to go over here. Hey, I want you to do this. You kind of just kind of give God the Heisman. You kind of go, ah, man. Really? Because you don't need me. Listen, you don't need me to put up a full court press on you. You know exactly what's going on. Or are you like Zacchaeus? He says, you're right, Lord. I've been about stuff. To the point of, of, of being, just being unlawful about it. And I ask you to forgive me, and I give it all to you. As a matter of fact, I'll make restitution four times whatever I did. But I just want the peace that you have, Jesus See, that's the subject. God doesn't need a special offering from you. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't even need you to believe him verbally or mentally. But to live life in such a way to realize he's the blessed, the blesser. And that he has blessed you to be a blessing to someone else. It has nothing to do with money. It has to do with this thing called my heart. And the number one competition is stuff. It's things. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes right now today. Just in the stillness of this moment. And again, I told you, I'm not, I'm not here to try to take a special offering. I'm not here to try to do anything. I'm just here to ask you, between you and God, 
Which person are you? I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand because you don't owe me an explanation. And it doesn't matter how long you've been going to church, how many weeks you have perfect attendance. You know your heart. You know you. Are you the rich young ruler that God is asking you to do something, to give something up, and you just drop your head and you walk away because you say, I can't? Jesus, I'll do anything you want me to do, but I just can't give this up. Or are you like Zacchaeus? Both went looking for Jesus, but only one of them found him. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. It's a little different than a typical prayer that we pray. Because it's not just about salvation. It's about God, I surrender all. Would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Jesus, today, I surrender myself to you. All that I have, all that I possess, I surrender it to you. And I ask you to wash me pure and clean from my heart, my mind, of any greed or selfish ambition that's in me. And create in me a clean and a pure heart. And renew my relationship with you. Be my Lord, not just my Savior. Today, I surrender all. Now, Father, I just pray today that you would help us. I know that people are here today, and Lord, we're, we're, we're living in a very uncertain world. And even preaching a message like this, it's fraught with so many any landmines that, that, Lord, it's just you want to be careful to navigate. But your word is so crystal clear on this subject. God, that you don't have any problem with us being a blessed people. But as long as we look to you as our source, God, as long as there's nothing else that comes in between us and you. And so, God, I just pray, help us, not just to verbally say that we trust you, but, God, in every area of our life, in our finances, in our resources, in our time, and in our talent, let us surrender it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.